everyone, and welcome to From Tip to Tail, a podcast dedicated to animal welfare. This podcast is sponsored by Cuddly. Cuddly is the only crowdfunding platform built specifically for animal welfare organizations worldwide. I'm Bridget. And I'm Sydney. We've spent years working with animal rescues and have seen such amazing innovation, strength, and heart. Having this personal connection with rescuers has made us more informed, grateful, and inspired. We hope by giving you an inside look, you will be too. Today, we're going to be talking with Carissa, who is part of Hawaii Marine Animal Response, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the preservation, recovery, and stewardship of Hawaii's protected marine species and the ocean ecosystem we share. So let's get started. Hi, Carissa. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Bridget. How are you guys doing? Wonderful. So you are the programs manager. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into all of this? Because my gosh, like what a great program to be involved in. And especially like all the programs that you guys are running. I mean, you got to have a lot of knowledge to do that. So <laughs> yeah, I can, of course, t- shed a little light on that. So I'm in my mid twenties. I would say that I'm like still a, like early career. But my background was I've been working with endangered species since I was about 19 years old. I have studied marine biology and marine science for undergraduate to get receive my bachelor's and then also for my graduate degree. So I moved to Hawaii in 2016 to get my master's degree in marine science and then, of course, fell in love with it here because it's so amazing. Ended up finding this position because I knew I wanted to get involved and get some experience in the nonprofit sector. So Hawaii Marine Animal Response is a nonprofit organization. And because of that, we're able to do a lot of different things and undertake a lot of different projects. And we're a growing nonprofit. Even though my title says programs manager, I do dabble in different sorts of things within the organization. So I really love that I'm able to wake up every morning and maybe do something different, like, for example, this in the morning, but then also find myself doing something a little bit, maybe more intellectually intensive later on. So my background was mainly a lot of schooling, a lot of volunteering, a lot of internships. And then I found myself here. Did you always love like marine life and animals in general? Yeah, I mean... I was definitely like, I loved animals growing up, like all animals, grew up with animals in the house. I did grow up in a landlocked state. I grew up in Arizona, but I was fortunate enough to be able to spend time at the beach when I was growing up with my family and be taught how to be a strong swimmer and snorkeling. And so I was always in love with the ocean. I always thought it was so mysterious and I wanted to be part of like discovering new parts of it and things like that. But It wasn't until I was about 16 years old, so the middle of high school, that I really realized that I kind of wanted to commit and and really do it. And that was actually, I was watching a documentary. So it just goes to show how powerful media can be. I was watching The Cove, which is a wonderful documentary. And after after I did, I I just decided that that's kind of what I wanted Mm -hmm. to focus on was to help the ocean and help marine animals however I could. I love that documentary. Have you seen it? If you, if mm-hmm. either of you haven't seen it or you have friends who haven't, you should totally watch it. Well, 
right now it's about to be Halloween weekend, but when this airs, it's going to be several weeks in the future. But I was about to say, I'm like, well, I've got my weekend planned out for me now. I'm going to watch that. (laughs) Absolutely. No, that's so incredible. And I mean, so granted, like we're in Southern California. So I feel like a love of the ocean feels like an obvious thing to us. I love that you came from a place where it wasn't so accessible and you just Mm -hmm. fell in love with it so hard that you, you had to pursue that. That's amazing. Yeah. It just goes to show that you can really, you don't have to grow up by by the ocean to, to like make your dreams come true. Like you Mm -hmm. can, you can be a, a kid growing up anywhere and still do it. Absolutely. And now you live in Hawaii, which is... I feel like I, I've been here about four years, 20, it's about to be 2021, almost five years. I learned a lot when I moved here. I had never been here before. I know a lot of people vacation here with their families, but I had never even stepped foot in the state before I moved here. And when I did, I just knew that the wildlife that we have here is so iconic and also unique and doesn't necessarily exist other places in the world. And it's provided a really great opportunity for me to continue my specialty in um, endangered species. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's so incredible. So can you get into maybe a little bit, because it feels like such a big mission. You're just like, we're just going to save all the animals in the ocean. Can you get into a little bit of what what the Hawaii uh, Marine Animal Response is all about and and what your goals are? Yes, absolutely. Hawaii Marine Animal Response, I mentioned, is a nonprofit. I sometimes refer to it as HMAR. It um, began in 2016. It's pretty new. And for everything that we're doing, it's a huge undertaking. And there's been a lot of focus on saving as much animals as we can and making the biggest impact. And that's one of the best things about this position. And so Hawaii Marine Animal Response's mission is to undertake substantial actions that result in like preservation, recovery, and stewardship of Hawaii's marine protected animals. And like for those listening, the animals that we work with are protected by federal laws. You need like permits to do activities with them, but also the general public can't just harass them or disturb them, they're protected. The work that we do originally focused on the endangered Hawaiian monk seal, um, which you both are based in California. I know there's lots of pinnipeds, seals, and sea lions in the area, Mm -hmm. but Hawaiian monk seals are only in Hawaii because they're endangered. If they go extinct, they would be extinct everywhere because they don't exist elsewhere in the world. And so there was a huge focus on Hawaiian monk seals, but over time we grew to include the sea turtle species that are found in the area, which there's there's about five, but we mainly deal with two. The seabirds, which are, there's over 15 species and they are, all of these animals are such key cornerstone components of a healthy ocean ecosystem. And then in 2020, we have grown, which has been a really wonderful step for us um, to include cetaceans or dolphins and whales response. So while our programs work to support the recovery of these animal populations, we do that in so many different ways. Like I mentioned, you mentioned that I, my title is a programs manager, but we don't just have programs that are based off of each species. We have them based on each initiative to help all the species and the ocean ecosystem as a whole. So we have response in the field, like on beaches. We have rescues when they're injured or distressed and need to be transported for care. We have education where we go into classrooms or 
Zoom meetings in 2020 and give information and help inspire kids. And then we have reporting where we collect data that helps inform science. And we also have opened up some initiatives into the, the water. So like marine operations and marine debris, because marine debris is a really big threat. I would say that, I mean, you asked what we do. We, we have so many programs that help separate our activities, but even though we're a small team, we're all really passionate and we want to take the biggest steps we can. So as part of my title, I work really closely with the education engagement program and then fundraising, which is how I'm connected with you all. And then as well as um, like oversight and volunteer management and like volunteer enrichment. Incredible. Oh my gosh. I was going to say me and Bridget were, so you mentioned that you do part of the ocean cleanup. Me and Bridget were actually talking about this earlier and we were wanted to maybe see if you could touch base and, and kind of explain what that entails. Because I know that there's a few different ways that people will go about doing ocean cleanups, beach cleanups, things like that. So how do you guys sort of incorporate that? Yeah. The issue of marine debris and plastic pollution has really gotten a lot of national attention in the last couple of years, which is so amazing because people are so inspired to make differences. So because of where Hawaii is located in the ocean, the current systems bring a lot of trash onto our beaches. So even though we know that there's trash in the ocean, like California and the Pacific Northwest coastlines aren't really littered with ocean-bound plastic. But because of where Hawaii is based, we really get like microplastics on the beach after storms. And so there's so much activity around it. And there are a lot of coastal beach cleanup organizations in Hawaii. And so when we decided we wanted to delve into addressing the marine debris problem, we wanted to do something different and like address a gap. And so mid last year, we launched our marine debris program, which actually focuses, we do focus on plastic, but our main goal is removing fishing gear from the near shore waters. So we don't go offshore. We, we stay in coastal waters. Recreational fishing is so common here. It's staple activity of the communities. And because of that, we can get fishing gear, fishing line hooks left behind. And those hooks and line are entanglement hazards and injury hazards for the animals that I mentioned earlier. So our marine debris program goes out with volunteer divers that are really comfortable in the water and we use really rigorous safety protocols and we facilitate removal of this these entanglement hazards in shallow waters. So we we do snorkel um, dives and we also do scuba dives, but for the most part these entanglement hazards are yeah, they're they sometimes are floating, but a lot of the times they're anchored and they're caught on usually coral, which is also not, we don't, we can't respond to coral when they get reports, but coral is a really key component of a healthy ocean. And so we want to help participate in coral restoration. And so we'll go out, disentangle fishing line, disentangle hooks. And then, you know, on the dive, you'll probably see plastic, maybe some aluminum cans or litter, and we remove that too. But our priority is removing hooks, fishing line nets, any kind of gear that's been left behind that could really hurt one of the marine animals that we work with because I told you it was just launched last year, but you know, those first three years we were just seeing such an increase in hookings. Not always didn't result in death, but like it's injury. And we wanted to instead of always be responding, we wanted to be proactive and address it from from the beginning and just kind of minimize the risk of them getting entangled in the first place. So we've been doing that a year and it just it's funded. 
through our partners, NOAA, which is a federal agency. And we have ramped up our activity despite COVID. And we are really excited about what's to come for that. Wow, that's incredible. So you're doing this all by hand then. Is that correct? Yeah. That's amazing. And so you're able to do that. And I mean, I would have to assume then by doing it by hand, you're able to preserve as much of the coral as possible, right? Um, Because I know from everything I've learned, like, I think a lot of people think like, oh, we'll just clean up the ocean. Let's just send like a little machine out there and to grab everything. And it's like in the process, like animals are getting caught and, and like other things are being damaged. And so in the end, like, sure, there's maybe less debris, but it's hurt a lot in the process. So what a wonderful initiative that you're able to do so much. And I know, I mean, even just like one net is not just one like piece of trash. It's something that is harming like animal after animal and and it has like a very large um, wake in its path. Yes, exactly. No, and what you're saying is true. Like people are like, let's go clean the ocean. And it's true. There's a lot of floating debris that we can go grab from the surface of the ocean, like plastic bags, balloons, things like that, that people can just be more responsible about. This is different. This is over time as that fishing line stays in the water, it it can become encrusted in the coral and corals are really delicate. They're sensitive. You don't want to just, you can't just pull that line. You have to have a, a really strong breath hold if you're holding your breath and you have to lightly remove it carefully. Like you wouldn't be able to do it if you were using anything besides your hands and a cutting tool. It takes a lot of time just to get that one, you know, say it's like three feet of monofilament fishing line but it definitely all adds up. And we hope that, you know, when we're out doing that activity on the beaches, that people just feel inspired to like dispose of their fishing gear responsibly. And that's really what we, what we really ask, ask of people. We know that fishing stable, it's important, but we just want people to take responsibility for the end of life of that, of those materials. Absolutely. And I mean, it's startling too to think that such a beautiful place like Hawaii, that that it sounds like because of the tides, it kind of becomes a dumping ground for the whole Pacific, that everything is just swept onto those beaches. So it, it's sad to think that like something that we're doing in California is reaching all the way over to Hawaii and like these endangered species over there. That's incredible. It really makes you think about your own actions. <laughs> Yes, it, you can be in a landlocked state. You can have never seen the ocean and you are, are so connected to the ocean. The ocean creates over half of the oxygen that we breathe. Something that you litter can find its way to the ocean through watersheds and streams to rivers to, to, to the sea. Even though people, not everyone may feel like they have all these experiences or connections with the ocean, we really are tied by the choices that we make every day. And, and that's why everyone can help, which is pretty exciting when you think about it, that even small things that you can take in a landlocked state, having never seen the ocean can help it. And then that the ocean that maybe you've never visited is, is helping you. I think that that's pretty amazing. Absolutely. Well, so I know you touched on a little bit, but how have things been going since COVID? I think that the pandemic, which has been such a journey for every single person on for companies for individuals for countries as a whole we've been trying our best to really take view it as an opportunity and so 
like I mentioned, part of my job entails running the education and engagement program. And so the moment that we kind of went into lockdown around March, I switched gears and prioritized virtual education lessons. I have some videos to teach you about some of the animals we work with on our YouTube channel. I prioritize social media growth because everyone was spending a lot more time on social media. Consistent postings about the ocean were more likely to be seen by more people um, and helping to grow our channels. I connected with Cuddly and we've been able to help fundraise for a lot of activities that maybe other funding opportunities weren't available for during the pandemic. And it's really helped keep our activity levels where we want them to be. And then also, you know, our beaches were shut down and we haven't had tourism here for a while. And so this summer, which was Hawaiian monk seal pupping season, a lot of the pups that were born were able to grow and nurse with their mothers in privacy. And they, they stay at the same beach for about five to seven weeks. It was a situation that we had not ever been presented with before. So it gave us an opportunity to really see what the development of a pup would look like without really any or at all human interference or really any humans nearby. So even though it's definitely been a challenge, it's really showed us kind of just how much the ocean has benefited from less people here and more space and also using it as a, an opportunity to help kind of raise community awareness. But I mean, I haven't been able to go into a classroom since last year, but I definitely think that there's going to be a shift towards more continued virtual learning and distance learning. And so I'm really excited to be a part of that. And we've been developing materials for a while now to help support educators that are just kind of looking for support and want to teach marine conservation topics. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. And I can totally understand how important education, specifically in the schools in Hawaii, are. But I also think, I mean, with all these virtual things that you're making now, I mean, also to be able to to teach people who maybe aren't in Hawaii, who are like across the country, how important their actions are and what what goes into, I don't know, it it makes the world feel a little bit smaller. It does. We actually had some people reach out to us from Switzerland and use our curriculum guides. And so if anyone's listening to this and you're an educator or you know someone who's an educator, we have curriculum guides on the species that we work with that are tailored for different age groups that you can have access to for free. And if you find them enriching, you'll be able, you can share with your community as well. That's something that I definitely have all, had always wanted to do, but it provided a great opportunity to do so. Yeah, this has been like the time for that. It's like everything that we didn't have time to do. It's like, well, now you're just sitting there. So. Right? Yeah, exactly. So I know we've been involved with a few like more pet or I say pet specific, but that's not, they're not pets. They're kind of like domestic. Yeah. Yeah. So I know, well, no, but as far as fundraising for with you at like specific animals that we've been supporting or helping to support on a fundraising level. I'm wondering if you can go into exactly what, I guess it's hard to say like a typical rescue, but what, what like it looks from like taking in an animal, rehabilitating them. And I, I would assume hypothetically re-releasing them into the wild, what that looks like. Yeah, I will. 
when we partnered with Cuddly, one of our first campaigns was, like I mentioned, it was Hawaiian monk seal pupping season in the summer. We really closely monitor the development of these individuals, these pups, because there's so few of them and every single one makes the difference for recovering the population. And so Makanalani, he was born, but he was just one of a handful of pups born. And so what we do, what that looked like for him was going out there on a daily basis and you, you create, you take observations essentially of exactly how we need to know, you know, is he nursing properly? Is, is his mother allowing him to nurse? Is the mother being disturbed at all? If, is there, if there's any humans around, is there fishing activity in the area? When the pup is developing during those five to seven weeks that they're on the beach, doing a lot of observations and monitoring. But after, after the mom leaves, after he's been nursed and weaned, we call them teenagers because they are like learning lessons for the first time. And so they can get into some, some mischief. And a lot of that mischief is getting oftentimes hooked or interacting with fishing gear. And, you know, they're mammals, they breathe air. And so that's really dangerous. And we want to make sure that they learn their lessons in a way that doesn't have consequences that are long lasting. For a Hawaiian monk seal, a intervention or a rescue would often be like, hey, this seal's exhibiting weird behavior. We're not sure exactly why, or this is their near fishing gear. Go out and monitor it, take photos, take observations. We will escalate the situation to our uh, partners at NOAA, a federal agency. And then if needed, if a response is warranted, NOAA will come out and, you know, there's a couple options, but in general, the seal will be captured and transported. Maybe the line will get cut. Maybe they will go through surgery or a procedure. There's a handful of different outcomes, but all of these things kind of vary by species. So right now it's about to be November and we are in a season called seabird fallout season where seabirds can get distracted by, you know, coastal lighting or, or street lights end up on the ground, even though they're looking for the ocean. They're trying, they're trying to use the moon to get to the open ocean to feed. That rescue oftentimes looks like a public caller reporting an injured, a downed seabird. Why is a seabird in the street? And we'll come out and we capture the seabird, which can sometimes be so challenging depending on how active they are. And then we will document it, do a little visual assessment on maybe what what could be wrong. And then we have a a really supportive network of partners. So we'll usually take it to a vet and the vet will decide what exactly is wrong with it. And if something is made, maybe it's just a, a wing fracture, nothing that something that can heal with proper care, they will be shipped actually to a facility in on another island, but still within the state for long-term rehabilitation. Those are just what it would look like for a Hawaiian monk seal and a seabird, but it really does vary by the resources, the infrastructure we have here, the timing and the species. Wow. Just to think that like a bird is like trying to follow their natural instincts and and caught in like the human the human environment. I mean, that's like shocking. And I mean, I but I love the idea that like the community is like reaching out to you for help and and you have this network of partners and it's just such a thoughtful response. And like the idea that like no creature is like 
I don't know. I think here, I don't know that someone would call if if we saw like a bird down, but I think it's so sweet to see like how everyone's coming together just to get get this bird back in flight. That sounds amazing. Yeah, and you know we would completely rely on public reporting. We we have calls coming in our hotline all day, but it's because the public wants to help. They just don't know exactly how, and and they don't they we have to do it because we have the permits and the training and the safety protocols. And so we're just so fortunate that we have a community that does, that does know that these animals are important and that if something's wrong, that there's something that they can do, which is call us. Absolutely. Well, and I saw too, there is an open call that people can come and volunteer for you as well. So was that something that's still happening despite COVID? Are you looking for specific requirements or, or, or what goes into the volunteer program? So yes, we've still been taking volunteers during COVID, doing a lot of Zoom trainings or distance trainings in the field, depending on what tier. Hawaii's been um, ranging in our tiers of shutdown to address the COVID-19 case count. So it definitely has been fluctuating throughout the last six months, but still have an active internship program, still have an active volunteer program. and these individuals that join can, you know, there's different requirements for each program. I mentioned that we have a handful of programs. And so we really tailor it so that the volunteers can, you know, choose what they like. If they are an educator, a retired educator, I have a lot of retired teachers on my education team and they don't really want to go be hiking, getting photos of seals like in, in the field for long hours hard days. They want to be educating in the classrooms. You know, they have the freedom to do that. So volunteers and interns can join at our website and learn more about all of our programs, but they all have different requirements and they all have different responsibilities and tasks that you would be expected to do. And you can be involved in all of them if you want, or you can just be involved in one or two. And we do suggest that it's really great to get your footing down with one program and grow from there. But all of them help develop needed skill sets. And it's been so great for undergraduate college students to join and kind of be like, oh, I like that part of this field and I don't really see myself there or this is what I'm really passionate about. And we spend a lot of our time communicating with the public. And so being able to have positive conversations and communicate conservation in the right way is really important for all of our programs. That's one thing that you kind of have to like to participate. You've got to like talking to people, no matter what program you're in. I, I mean, yeah, a necessary evil in this world, I think, for so many things. Yeah, exactly. We love so much of everything you're doing. This is incredible. I mean, and it seems like there are so many different programs and facets that are going on. And I also, I mean, I love the thought that that you, you're getting to sit there and watch as like this population of like monk seals Hawaiian monk seals, right? I've got to (laughs) specify. I love that they're getting like the chance to like thrive. And hopefully whenever COVID is over, they'll be stronger than ever. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. As for you, do you have any personal pets at home or or are you enjoying the wildlife too much? (laughs) (laughs) No, I totally have a dog. I adopted, I rescued my puppy. She's not a puppy anymore. She's five years old. Back when I lived in Arizona, I was in college. I rescued her in Tucson, Arizona. And then I got into graduate school and I went through all the hoops to get her here. 
with me and she's about, I've had her for about five years now. So I've only got one pup, but she's definitely all I need right now. I know we were talking about all the hoops that that's required to bring a dog over to Hawaii and it is quite a few. <laughs> yeah. Rabies hasn't been introduced in this, to this island and obviously the island is closed. So they want to do everything that they can to prevent rabies because it could really, it could really hurt native ecosystems and the native animals. So there's a lot of hoops, but luckily I addressed it early and got the timeline right. And so she was able to come with me. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So sweet that you have like quarantine buddy too. I do like that so many people are rescuing animals and fostering animals during quarantine because oftentimes I just think that it's been such a good opportunity because everyone's home so they can give the proper time and training the animal needs. I love that it's not just at home, but it's like there's this great ripple effect where it just seems like nature and like the animal kingdom is is getting this like breath a bit. And hopefully, I think with all the rescues we talked to, we everyone is like waiting for the other shoe to drop. But but we hope that that's not the case. Yeah. So then you were, I know you said you're in charge of funding. So have you been... Have you seen like a, a decrease in funding overall? Because I know that's something that we've we've heard from a lot of nonprofits over the past few months. Yeah, we are supported by a combination of government grants. So a lot of grant applications, government grants, community grants. I would say fundraising, Cudley's our only fundraising partner, but I would say it's, it's really substantial for us. Public donations and corporate sponsorships. So. When a lot of our field activity kind of slowed down as things shut down and we were all at home, we knew that this was going to be one of the effects of the pandemic. And so we really put a lot of effort into offsetting all that we could. And for example, with less tourism, there's less people to talk to on the beach, less people to tell about an organization that might be open to considering to donate. And so we have seen a shift and we've just kind of had to pivot. It's been, like I said, an opportunity, but the funding sources that we normally kind of would go for at a time like now in the fall, not all of them are available. And so we just have to allocate time to research other funding opportunities because people are still giving and people are still generous and there's still opportunities out there. There's just a shift in priorities. But the way that things are going with the environment, I really feel like there, no matter what happens, there's going to be an increase in financial opportunity for environmental conservation initiatives because it's such a needed niche right now to address. And these issues are only becoming more overwhelming and pervasive. And so even though we have noticed a shift, I would definitely say we have, we've been able to, you know, like I've said, maintain a lot of our normal activity levels, which we're so fortunate to, but I think a lot of that comes from preparing and knowing early and having a really strong financial plan and allocating that time for staff to look for different funding opportunities. Absolutely. And I mean, I have to, I have to assume that, I mean, all your work in education is only feeding into your work in, in funding as well. And now, I mean, granted, you've been like pivoting ever so slightly. I'm sure it's been 
like a learning experience, I think for all of us, like as far as like virtual platforms and things like that. But you have to, I, I would have to assume that like, this is the time you've been sowing the seeds basically where you're building out this virtual platform. And it's really going to probably expand a lot of your opportunities as an organization because you're going to be able to reach more people far and wide. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's exactly what I thought of when I was, when, it, when lockdown was announced in March and I was like, actually, we need to grow our social media. Actually, we need to grow our virtual platforms because next year when maybe, or who knows, if things start opening up, we want to be able to have a larger audience, a larger community to reach with information to ask if we need help for. And we're only going to have that if people get engaged now. So it's really like a, it's definitely a longer term strategy. We've been trying to set ourselves up for a few years down the line, not just how can we stay afloat right now? We're going to be fine no matter what, but we really want to take this as an opportunity to grow and expand because yeah, like you said, if I have virtual video lesson plans on our YouTube, people can watch that forever. That's always going to be there. They can watch that from other countries in different time zones at their own. Like before I was scheduling events and going in and I could reach 40 students, but now that video has the potential to reach hundreds, if not thousands of people over time. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's such a wild, wild world. No, but I, I really feel like it's, I mean, and just as far as social media is concerned, I mean, who doesn't need like more sea turtles and like adorable marine creatures in their feed? Exactly. I mean, heck, if you get on TikTok, I will for sure be all about everything <laughs> that you post there. I've been debating talking to my team about TikTok, but so we're on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we're most, most active on Facebook and Instagram. And I'm like, we kind of need a TikTok. Because <laughs> I've seen a lot of like whale watching companies and a lot of really cool like animal centers on TikTok. And, you know, people love that. So it's definitely on the horizon, I hope. Yeah, I mean, just a chance to see things that you can't normally see and certainly like endangered species. I mean, oh my gosh, I would love that. But no pressure. <laughs> I'm not trying to add more to your list. No pressure. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, so... We have some kind of fun questions since we work with so many dog and cat rescues. We kind of mm-hmm. stick with like personal pets, but I think maybe we should expand these to be a little bit more ocean focused. So, if a monk seal was president, what would be the first thing he did? I want to say if a monk seal was president, because I mean, so we only have about 40 that hang out around Oahu. And so we, we know them we kind of know their alphanumerical name and they also are gifted their Hawaiian names. So we, and you get to know them over time. And so it definitely depends. It's weird to say, but we definitely are familiar with certain behaviors that each of them have. So I guess it would totally depend on the seal. But I think if a monk seal was president, he or she would probably protect a lot of the oceans, implement a bunch of marine protected areas so that they could have all the all the safe areas in the ocean to play without any interaction from anything else. It would just be for them. Are they like a really social animal or are they just like, leave me alone. I'm like an introvert and I need to go and read a book now. Like, <laughs> I guess I would have to say that it definitely depends on the individual. But you know, if you're a monk seal, if they're coming to Waikiki Beach, they 
are familiar with being around humans for a while. And so some of them are kind of introverted. Some of them are hanging out in isolated areas on the island, but others, you know, they do go where crowds are and it doesn't bother them. So some of them sleep like a rock. So it definitely depends. (laughs) Even with like dogs, people assume they're like, well, this breed has this personality and this, this tiny dog has this personality. But of course, that's not the case. It's like everyone is, has their own personality. And I love that that's the same for, for these seals. They're just like, this guy's the party animal. This guy is, likes his space. Like, that's so amazing. It's actually one of, it's, I don't know if it's sad, but I think it's kind of cool. But it's actually one of the coolest things about having such a small population. This happens a lot with endangered species. When they are small, you get the conservation initiatives around recovering the population require you to be familiar with each individual animal. So you see this with like the Southern resident killer whale population in the Pacific Northwest. There's only about 70 or so. Scientists and conservation managers have to know like each individual animal because they want to know like what interactions have they had with fishing gear or what threats have they had. So it provides a really great opportunity for us to be like, oh, that's Makanalani. He's her son. He's her fourth pup. And wow, I can't believe he's at Waikiki Beach. He's always at this beach. And so it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, it sort of feels like, like the rest of us are like watching The Bachelorette and you're like watching like Real Housewives of uh, Wahoo Shore or something. The real monk seals of Hawaii. That's so fun. And I mean, what an interesting way to get involved with them too. But moving on to our next question. So what is the... We might be dipping into dangerous territory here, so let me know if I am. But what is the naughtiest thing you've seen marine animal do? I was trying to rescue a seabird. This was also early on in my employment, so I had <laughs> I had some experience, but I was I was really trying to do my best here. The report was, you know, he he had a his wing looked slumpy. It was probably injured of, of some sort. It was a bigger bird. It was a blue-footed booby. And if you look up a photo of that animal, it can, they can be large. You know, and it's also, it's so important. We're, we're always try our best to be so respectful, especially the communities there. There's opportunity for education. And so I'm multitasking. I am talking to an auntie. I am communicating why this animal could be injured. And I'm like, how am I going to get this animal into the carrier? And I am alone. And so, except for the, the people who reported it. And this, seabird is on like a ledge that I have to walk out onto. He's not in the water. He's not on the ground. And so I'm trying to approach him going through our proper handling procedures. And he, I'm wearing a hat. I've got like tactical gear on. And he, I don't know if it was a he, could could have been a female, but the seabird, they have really large beaks and he just he kept pecking at me. I was wearing gloves. I was okay. It was all right. But he like pecked at my sunglasses, which this is why we wear eye protection. And he actually got them off. And I have never, first of all, you have to have so much precision to be able to do that. It was quite impressive. But also I was like, oh my gosh, I'm exposed now. Like I, I, need, to, I need to put it back on. But I was running out of time. And he could have gone out to sea. And I didn't want that to happen because I wanted to be able to facilitate the care. And so he continued being that kind of rowdy. 
but I have never seen a seabird successfully do anything that naughty before. So I would say that that was definitely top five. Oh my gosh. Birds make me a little bit nervous too, because it's just like with the beaks, you don't know what... (laughs) Yeah, you never know. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, yeah, I feel like you're so brave too. You're just like, because you made it happen, I'm assuming, right? Like you were like, yeah, now is the time. I have to do it. But I mean, it's true. Like they, it definitely depends on the animal in the situation. So I'm just, I'm glad I was still able to, to get that one and facilitate that care for that one. Amazing. So our last question is, if you have to pick one life motto, what would it be? I think that my, uh, the way I, I've really always lived my life before I was part of, before I was fortunate enough to be part of HMR2, I just, I really do believe that like small little ripples do end up making waves for whatever cause you're caring about. And so it doesn't matter how small you think that your step is. It could be, it could be going to the ballot box. It could be saying no to like a plastic soda. All of that has such a cascading effect that can make monumental change. And I used to not necessarily think that something that small could, but what I ended up doing is I just started leading by example in my life. And I've seen so many people become curious and ask questions and then do it themselves. And over time, now I'm 26, now I see how many people in my life are cognizant of actions that they choose and what they eat and the plastic that they use. And that's not from me lecturing them. That's just from living my life aligned with my values. And so if people care and you're you're discouraged why others don't care, just focus on how you can be better for for your cause and what you believe in and they'll come aboard. So I would say that, yeah, I try, I try to live my life motto that, yeah, every small step can be like a ripple that can over time make, make waves. I love that. And I mean, I couldn't agree more too. I feel like you can like lecture people and give them a hard time about something, but leading by example is just like far and wide the best thing that you can do to inspire others and encourage people like even just like the idea that like, oh, she's doing that. So it's not, it's not impossible to do. I can cut this out of my life and she's fine. I, I'll be fine too. I'm like, that's amazing. Yeah. I remember I was 20 and I was so, I was like discovering all of these things wrong with the ocean. I was so angry. And I gave this presentation about oil spills in my class and my, my teacher, my professor, she pulled me aside. She was also like a mentor to me. And she was like, and positive communication really inspires people. Like I know it's so upsetting, but you have to really gauge that to be positive because it's going to get more people on board and you're going to be more impactful. And at the time I was like, that's I'm still so angry. It's really the only way. You have to be you have to be understanding and meet people where they're at because it's the only way we're going to invite more people into this movement and so many people are joining every day, but it's so exciting and if you are open and accepting and supportive, there's just so much more potential. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And real quick, just because I, I hadn't asked yet. Um, so we work with a lot of nonprofits and many of them are very small teams, like one and two people. I know now you've, you've dipped your toe into creating these like education videos. 
so many of our animal rescues, I mean, there's so much about animal welfare that I think still feels foreign to like the mass populations. I'm wondering if you have any advice for a nonprofit looking to expand their education as far as like virtual programs. Yeah. So I've been doing, I've been doing conservation education for like eight or nine years now. And I've always liked in-person hands-on lessons, but we are in unprecedented times and virtual lessons uh, really need to be be out there yesterday. So I would say advice for that is you want to still find ways to keep it engaging. For me, I don't have all a bunch of fancy video editing skills, but I try to keep the words or, or how I'm speaking really engaging for the kids or the audience that it's targeted to. So I would say that if you don't have a lot of time, you can make printable worksheets. You can make printable coloring sheets that can just help help kids really just get exposed to the topic. But if you do have the time, videos are really great, less than 10 minutes, sometimes less than five, and really getting that out there. So whether that's emailing your email list or posting on your website, because we want as many people to have access to that curriculum. And then another thing is teachers are God heroes right now. They really need the support. And so just reaching out to teachers, you know, educators, you know, and their colleagues and saying, can you use this? Why don't you use this as your brainstorming activity? It's really about communicating with your community and making sure that the re- any resources you develop actually do get used. So I would say my bias is start small if you're new to it. Make it easy. There's word search makers online, but also that you can really, really make it engaging with videos or even PowerPoints, depending on the age group. I think that kids these days really do want to be, they want to feel empowered and they want to feel inspired but they really need engaging content to do that. So that would be my advice. Such good advice. Incredible. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us. I know you're off to save the next animal, but we're so we're so honored to, that we were able to chat um, with you and honored to be partnering with, with the Hawaii Marine Animal Response. Thank you both so much. We really love Cuddly and it's helped us so much. And we're just really excited to continue the work we're doing, but also to continue to work with you. Amazing. Aloha. It was so great talking to Carissa today. She had so much wonderful information to impart about the environment, marine animals, and the evolution to virtual learning that so many of us are doing. If you want to learn a little bit more about Hawaii Marine Animal Response, you can check our show notes or our blog. We absolutely love hearing from you guys. So please go ahead and rate, like, review this podcast so that we can hear what you guys think. And be sure to follow Cuddly on all social media accounts at We Love Cuddly. That's C U D D L Y. Thanks, guys.